I was thinking about this the other day where are you the kind of person where um, if you're looking forward to something and it doesn't pan out, the amount of looking forward to it that you were, you're like doubly disappointed. Mm-hmm. Whereas like if you keep it a little, it's such a Catholic nonsense. <laughs> if you keep it at arm's length, the devastation isn't as deep, I guess is the way I phrase it. Yes. Where it's that, just like, I'm skeptical. And like, there's a lot of things that could go, I don't want to be naive about it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I want to be like rational and calm and have a backup plan. Cause also I'm, I know that if I get too ahead and I don't think of a backup plan, it I freak out when I don't have a backup plan. So that kind of vibe, you know, <laughs> I'm just trying to, <laughs> everything's going the way it should right now. So it feels good. Yeah, that feels like the... Everything's the going most, fine. The, like, most Catholic approach to that. Yeah. Is it's going fine, don't, but I will not be Don't let to it be too it. happy yet, because it could go away. <laughs> but I think that's not even a Catholic vibe. That's a 2020 vibe. Yes. Like, oh my the gosh. second it's feeling so good, some other trash happens. Yeah, speaking of some other trash happening, I was trying to figure out, like, <laughs> how to, like... Because, again, right, like, we're experiencing this week... And you, the listeners at home, will be experiencing us experiencing this week at a very different time, uh, just because of our recording schedule. But like, I was trying to think, how do we sum up the week we've just had in a way that isn't the five hours we would really need to unpack it? Because <laughs> it's just been, it's been a week. It's been a long fucking week. Yeah, I, yeah. It's like a Bay of Pigs week where they're going to like dissect each day that happened, right? Yeah. In real time. <laughs> it's going to be a movie or a miniseries later and it'll be like, Monday. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about like how this is a West Wing episode this week. Yes. And like. This is like a West Wing season. <laughs> it's a whole season in one week for sure. Because I think everything's happened in the West Wing that's happening in real life where President is ill there's a debate. Prefer- I mean, it's an, no, it was like an episode a night for sure. Debate. Yeah. Uh, tax law. Uh, what else? Have I oh, campaign staffer has it. Oh, no. The big DT's got it. Oh, we're going to the hospital. The hospital scenes. I mean, it's just, that's where my brain went. I mean. Yeah. I also find it interesting, the conversation happening around it and how I was listening to an interview with John Dickerson, who... Let me tell you what, guys, I like to find a rational uh, voice in these times. I'm sure you are. He's one of them. Judy Woodruff's another. Mm -hmm. Uh, The people Judy Woodruff interviews usually where they're just like, hi, I'm going to bring you back to reality. And I'm not interested in Twitter and I'm not interested. I'm not. not, That's not my source. You know, I, I understand how this normally goes and what to expect and what not to expect and what's unconventional. And I use calm rhetoric and I try to be. A journalist. (laughs) And uh, he was just, he was talking about these kinds of moments and these kinds of concern that the nation feels towards one person and despite animosity. I mean, he was just reflecting on like, it was really nice to go back to a normalcy moment where president was diagnosed. Everybody talked about it. Every democratic presidential nominee or associate or Barack Obama, former presidents were like, we wish him a speedy recovery. It's not about 
the campaign right now. Please get better. This is serious. Like, that tone was great to see. And I was like, yeah, that's that's a fair point. I didn't think of it that way. Then there's other conversations happening, you know, all over on Twitter and stupid places like that. But I, I don't know. People that are going like, you don't have to. I do not believe this, by the way. I just want to be clear. People that are saying um, you don't have to well-wish an abuser and somebody that's like hostile and harmful. And I was like, that doesn't sit right with me either. Like, I just, that feels very wrong. There's a difference between, if that's the road we're going down, that makes me very sad. Because yeah, it's, it's like, who are we to judge in that sense? Like, it's, a, you know, and if the shoe is on the other foot and someone dehumanized you, you because they thought you were scum or trash or awful or, you know, do unto others is the way I'm feeling this week. Yeah, and I think, right, it's, the, it's that, like, what is the appropriate domain for that response? And I think, like, as a president he's horrific and Mm -hmm. so the the domain in which one expresses those feelings is like yeah we're gonna vote him out and Mm -hmm. like we'll happily like kick his ass up and down the campaign trail yeah that doesn't mean you have to like wish him ill health correct i mean if we like want to like look at this as like a metaphor wherein like a human being who doesn't pay any taxes is using like socialized medicine provided by the government in his own while suite. Trying, in his own suite while trying yeah. to take it away from a bunch of other people. Yes. That metaphor is a powerful metaphor. Yes. But that metaphor can exist without also having we'll to let separately it wish the individual harm. Yeah. Harm. Let it stand on its own. Yeah. Yeah. Let oh it boy, be totally it clear. It yeah. It's 100% clear. It 100% clear. <sighs> yeah. Ugh. So it's... I'm so excited to talk about my lady because I, I think she has wait. a lot to do with the modern political forces of the 20th century and 21st century. Oh, I love that. Cause I went in the literally opposite direction. I was like, yes. can I get off this planet? And I was like, the, what, the closest thing I could get off this planet was like space program stuff. So that's where I went this week. I don't think you need that. Did you know you get like 300 times the amount of radiation on the moon as you do on earth? Cause there's no, no atmosphere. So that's like a consideration as they're thinking about how we put up stations on Mm-hmm. the moon or, or other planets that don't have our cushy atmosphere you have to like yeah it's like a you're on an x-ray every day you know which isn't good i think they said like it, the, the numbers are crazy where it's like you get 300 times the radiation or something like that but then they're like it only increases your cancer like your likelihood to get cancer by three percent and i was like well we're already like very likely to get cancer in some form <laughs> I just feel like that's everybody's got some kind of genetic thing going on or some kind of exposure or lifestyle or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but 3% is probably huge. I don't know. It's probably not great. I mean, yeah, like any more cancer is bad, I would think. We are a but... beautiful little jangle puzzle of um, biology. So changing any one of the attributes that allow that to happen is super hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did we get to the moon? Space. You want to go space. to space. I want to go to space. You're going to talk about like you the know, political situation. Well, <laughs> I'm just going to tell you that, you know, what's tied up in space is government funding. So I don't yes. think you would feel as separate from our little world down here as you would like to. Oh, no, not even a little bit. And like, going to talk a little bit about it. We'll get into mine when we get to mine, because I think you're going first today. Yes. Does yours have to do with space, though? Mine does have to do with space. Oh, my but, like, gosh. Cool. But that was like my, my attempt at escapism this week. And I think it was only moderately it's fun. successful. It's fun to go like, what's New Zealand got going on right now? <laughs> or, 
No you know, COVID. That's what they've got going on right now. Listen, backup plans are good. They also have earthquakes and people against Islam, and they've got a lot of shenanigans too. I mean, it's just they do. They do. There was um, the the NPR politics podcast, which is my yeah. like bit of sanity. Invites people to record their intro every mm-hmm. episode, mm-hmm. and someone was like, "Yeah, I went on a camping trip to New Zealand in March, and haven't left since." And have they just been like living in their camping van? And they're American. And they're American. And I'm like, oh my god, did they get their absentee ballot? That that was literally <laughs> these are the things <laughs> they care about. Well, they listen to There's NPR a- politics, so I think they're prepped. Yeah, I think I think I I feel like if you don't have like a mailing address in a foreign country, you can get it sent into a consulate or an embassy and do it there. Yeah, is my understanding. So I would I would hope the gentleman was doing that. Thank God they're in a country that's okay with us having a consulate or an embassy there. <laughs> can you imagine people that are in places that are not big fit? Well, yeah, you know. Yeah, probably not any easier. But then again, it's like not easy necessarily to get it, even if you live here. So yeah. Um, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to, but I'm, yeah, I'm still waiting. I have not received mine yet. Hopefully it will be here soon. When did you send it, send the application I in? I applied for it at the beginning of August. Um, and I got a, con- so the way Pennsylvania works is. You're in Pennsylvania. They, I'm in Pennsylvania. They want you to super vote. <laughs> and yeah. there was a bunch, there's a bunch of stuff about like what was, like how the ballots were necessarily going to work and what they were going to be on. So they like. I think are getting sent a little bit later than they normally would, but they generally don't mail them until oh, like you're sometime a swing in state voter. I'm a swing state voter. Do you and feel I, very like appealed no, to? I don't at really? all. Really? They're not I'm, coming for you? They're I'm I live in a liberal suburb. Oh, okay. They're not coming they're not coming for me. They're coming for like the middle of the state, for like Scranton, for Allentown, for like a lot of the like rest belt parts of the state purple not, parts yeah yeah they are not going for oh no, no no they're going for the red parts which is the oh i thing. see to make it they're, more yeah yeah um but no no one has no one has come personally asked me for their vote and i'm offended i mean <laughs> obviously i think based on everything we've said on this podcast the last few years is very clear who i'm going to be voting for i don't but know i don't feel appealed to as a swing state voter okay give it a week or two who knows <laughs> who knows I, what they'll do i did when i was doing research for my episode like opened up youtube to watch a video and got not one but two different targeted political ads i did they too watch the video doug jones in alabama here is getting a lot of ads about him which i found interesting because i didn't think they would have to do many ads about him mm-hmm. i thought it was like i think my night my like um cynical take on it was Okay, we'll give you one, and then he'll get out in a couple years, and we'll put a red guy back in there. And then it's Tommy Tuberville, who's like a coach, and he's a Trumpy, and like he's a Republican. Like it's all the stuff that we don't even need to think about. So I was like, why are you even wasting your money? Trump advertises to me a lot too, and I don't know how I got him at. Oh, I, you know what I did? It's my fault. They were like, will you take a survey? Mm-hmm. To tell us how President Trump is doing? And I was like, oh, will I? And this was in 2018, 17, yeah. when I didn't know anything. So I'm still on that list, I guess. Yeah, I did the same thing. And then, like, when, like, unsubscribed from their emails, but do still occasionally get the advertisements yeah. in my internet world. Yeah. And I don't want to tell them they're wasting their effort because they have to pay money to get it to me. And if they're wasting money getting it to me, that's money they're that's not spending on other people. That is and very granted, true. That is very true. That money getting it to me is like what a fraction of a cent, but like that's a fraction of a cent they are not spending elsewhere. 
I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. Welcome to Missing History, a podcast where each episode we discover the people absent from history class. Spoilers, they're usually female identifying. We uncover their stories, investigate their impact, and discuss how they've been ignored or sidelined. Today's episode contains strong language. I'm going to talk to you about Mary Elizabeth Lease. I will tell you how I found out about her at the end because it's a YouTube clip that I want to share. Um, okay. But we're going to talk about Mary Elizabeth Lease and we're going to talk about the rise of populism as a political faction. Um, yes. Are we going to play the song from Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, Populism? Yeah. No, we're not. Okay. We're also not going to go as far back as Andrew Jackson. We're going to stick solidly in like the 1860s on. Okay, cool. Different populism. Different populism, like the rise of the populist party, the political party as a third party in the 1890s through 1900s. And it's sort of development into the 20th, 21st century populism. Very Mm -hmm. cool. So this is the exciting moment where I'm going to be like, I definitely remember from my high school history class talking about the populist Mm -hmm. party. And that is the extent to which I have retained that information. So I am so excited for this. Okay, so <clears throat> we're going to go to a different country. Potato famines, 1845-ish, 1840s. Uh, the poor of Ireland are starving because all of their potatoes are, well, mo- a lot of their potatoes have uh, disease and rot. But the the fun fact is all the good potatoes are getting shipped to England to feed the English and so the Irish are left to starve. It's a great lesson in wealth distribution. Um, <laughs> so native Irish folks are looking for any way out. So you see this big influx of immigration from Ireland in the 1840s, particularly to America. They go to other places as well. Mm-hmm. This is where a lot of our ancestors come from. If you are white, uh, as a Mary Kathleen, I uh, descended from some of these folks, I'm sure. Uh, not exclusively, but there's a there's a lineage. I don't know if it's potato famine, but um, Joseph Clients was a he was he wasn't the like most poor, but he was a little he was a little bit higher up than like the people that were absolutely devastated, which is why he was able to procure some money together. His um, wife mm-hmm. Elizabeth was a niece of a bishop of Dublin. So this, they had a little more family status, but they still realized like, this is not a place to have a future. So we need to maybe try and get to America. They were burned out on the English government. Mm -hmm. They didn't trust the banks. They didn't, it was not good. So they emigrate to America. They land in Pennsylvania and uh, Joseph is interested in the nature of the government of America in the way that it is by the people for the people, yada, yada, yada. Um, That's very telling when you are coming from a monarchy that makes your country starve. So I think there's, that's why America likes to um, bring in the huddled masses from across the globe, hopefully depending on the day. Um, uh, They decide to use their crash. They get to Pennsylvania, Ridgeway, Pennsylvania, and their daughter, Mary Elizabeth, is born uh, in September of 1850, or in some cases it says 1853. doesn't super matter. 1850s, pre-Civil War. They're in Pennsylvania. Pre-Civil War. Um, They try to farm in Pennsylvania. The land is very different from what they have ever known. Uh, The land in Ireland is very specific. Um, 
because they, they don't have the very little status that they had in Ireland. They're actually like lower, quote unquote, lower class because they are Irish, they are immigrants, they are poor. Um, this mm-hmm. is a hard life. Uh, farming is hard in general, but in the 1850s, it's not super pleasant. Oh, hey, you are also probably ostracized from the community because you're different and yada yada. The Civil War begins when Mary Elizabeth is eight years old. Her father decides to join the Union. Um, and it is... Yeah, there's there's one source that I had that maybe they uh, John Clients and two sons. I guess they had other two other kids. I mean, I didn't get much detail about the other boys, but um, you could pay a guy to take your place in the Union Army if you were mm-hmm. super rich. So there's some thought that he got paid to join, and so the thought of giving three hundred bucks to his wife and child was and his young daughter was a good idea so that's why he decided to join uh, but it did mm-hmm. not turn out to be fruitful because he was captured and imprisoned at Andersonville which is oh that's not well some good. would call it a death camp not a prisoner of war camp because uh, it was later found out or yeah uh, let me let me go back a little bit so he and his two sons joined so they actually each get $300 so Mary's left with $900 pretty big deal for a farmer in Pennsylvania However, the two sons, Skip uh, and the father, go to Fredericksburg and Lookout Mountain. So Fredericksburg, also not a really good place to be. I think the two sons die in battle there, but the dad is captured. Joseph is captured and imprisoned in the death camp. And it is um, thought that he starved to death while in captivity. To Mary Elizabeth, who's a young girl at this time, the Democrats are the party of the South at this moment. And uh, led the Confederacy, so she's sort of like politically not not a big fan of the people she saw causing her father's uh, unnecessary death. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Checks out. so she is a she's very smart. She trains to become a teacher, as you do when you're a young lady in the 1850s. Farming's not her jam, so she decides to oh maybe I'll do teaching. As she learns that craft, um, the West is starting to get settled post-Civil War. So we're having the Western expansion. And with the Western expansion, there's a, a, by the people expanding it, there's a need from the East to fill it with all the things that you need. So we need school teachers. We need doctors. We need people that want to have shops. We want to pull people in. So the pay in the West is better because there's a certain amount of danger, risk, newness, the, the draw, right? Um, so the money she was getting in Pennsylvania, she was like, this is stupid. I need to, okay, I'll go to Kansas and teach. So she ends up in Kansas, um, at a mission school. It it seemed to be her kind of people too. Like I, I was Kansas anti-slavery. I can't remember. I believe they were, or they were like 50, 50. I can't remember. Yeah. They like, they fight over it. And like bloody Kansas is a big Mm -hmm. thing, like right before the civil war. But I think during the Civil War, they're a union yeah. state. She gets in with a Catholic academy or like she came from a Catholic school. So she got in with the Catholic community mm-hmm. there, which helped. But she definitely becomes, I, I think there's also a certain element of like in the West, there's a little bit more equality among the sexes because we see this a lot in farther way Western, like Wyoming and Montana in terms of their legislative practices. 
But you can Mm -hmm. see that sort of mentality too, is like if you're settling the land, you can't really get caught up in like propriety and society norms because you're creating society as you go. So I think that kind of mentality really appealed to her as she is very, very smart and feisty and Mm -hmm. able to lecture and teach with the best of them. So let's see, there's something about a nun. doesn't really matter. She starts to see a (laughs) pharmacist named Charles Lease. And I think they, was it the court? (laughs) You don't date in the 1870s. You court, they court for a couple of years and she marries Charles. So she becomes Mary Elizabeth Lease, which is the name that she becomes known as in her career. He's not super political, and he is a Democrat, so she clearly, like, put her prejudice aside, but it was maybe a point that would disintegrate some stuff later on. Spoiler alert, they maybe don't uh, stay happily married the rest of their lives. But they're like, what is the next opportunity for the two of us to build a life? Well, there's this really cool thing called the Homestead Act that we should take advantage of while we're in Kansas. Homestead Act was in 1862. Any adult citizen or intended citizen which is kind of nice, who had never borne arms against the U.S. government, a.k.a. all you little Confederates, could claim 160 acres of surveyed government land. Claimants were required to improve the plot by building a dwelling and cultivating the land. So we'll let you have the land. You have to do something productive with it, you know. So all of these farmers that were trying to get out from the east where a lot of chains of command and privilege had been established... Uh, move west, and Kansas is a perfect place for this. However, prairie life, super, super hard. The The land is different, again, from Pennsylvania or Ireland. So if you don't understand the seasons or the climate or the weather or tornadoes, I mean, can you imagine? It's, well, it's no. arid. It's it, There's not a lot. It's not lush in a, in a lot of ways. Um, dry. Uh, you also have pretty much nothing because you are poor. So you start in a tent, you build a hut, you build a house. There's not a lot of trees. It's not forest in a lot of places unless you really are strategic about where you find your land. Mm-hmm. It's it's a hard life. They don't particularly succeed. It's it's exhausting and there's only two of them. And they, if you don't have any money, you can't invest in the property. But eventually... They decide to let the farm go and they move to Denison, Texas, so that Charles can cash in on his profession of pharmacy. Mm-hmm. He had all these skills. We might as well go live in the town. We thought owning land would be good, but this is too hard. So they have a home there. They're in 1874 and they start to have children. They have a son, Charles Henry, and uh, they have a couple other, a daughter. Um, I think they have four children eventually. It's also in Denison that she starts to associate with uh, other women with similar interests to her. Women in politics are becoming more of a thing. Suffrage is taking its very baby steps like, mm-hmm. at this time in terms of like a full... I mean, it's always been there. But with the like prohibition inkling starting, post-Civil War, Industrial Revolution, all of these things, um, women in politics and activism is, is gaining a foothold. Women are more educated than they've ever been at this time. Uh, they just saw a lot of men go off and get killed for a, 
a lot of harm was done in that way that I think, I think war propels women's movements in a very interesting way where it's just like, this is nonsense. Why aren't we participating? You're killing everybody we love. We want to participate. So you just stop doing that. Mm-hmm. That's a you know very simple thought. But anyway, uh, da, 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 da. she is a prohibitionist. She is, she is inspired by suffrage. She, she, she starts to gain her own political feelings while in Denison with the other women. So 1883, they have another, they have a daughter. Um, they want to try farming again. I guess he didn't like pharmacy. You know, I think there's also, a, a, there's an element of like, there's so much land. There's so much right. bounty. And the population is booming. So there is demand for food in a way that makes it a lucrative business. I think for a lot of us, we're like, farming is uh, it's so risky and it's so anything could happen that it seems not as wise of a decision. But at this time it was where you could make a fortune. There's just so much to be had in terms of uh, possibility. So I think there's some element of that. They also have four kids to help them now. So get about there. (laughs) They go back to Kansas and they get a little bit better at it. They had good weather and they produced a lot of corn. They sold the corn at pretty good prices but due to the nature of many factors at this time, they still walked away with very little profit. Mm-hmm. And they both sat with that being like, none of that makes sense. We have countless bounty. We produced the crop everybody needed. We got it over there. We sold it at a good price. Why are we, the people that made the corn in the first place, why do we have like two pennies to our name, whereas a bank took some, uh, uh, railroad took some, uh, the, anyway, we're going to get there. Didn't sit right with her budding political feelings. Okay. So, okay. They moved to 1884, uh, because they have no money left for seed repairs, other livestock. They go into poverty again. So they moved to Wichita in 1884 and she's like, this has to stop this cycle that we're on. She knows she's a good speaker. She was really good at the women's group in Denison. So she's realizing that big business, Eastern banks and railroads and government interference are meaning that farmers, miners, labor groups don't get to participate in the American dream. And that's unacceptable. So she's like, I'm sick of this. So Charles finds pharmacy work again. She does laundry on the side to help supplement their income. She looks into uh, becoming a lawyer because she's like, I am so good at speaking. I should get in there with my rhetoric. So she she could apprentice at a law firm to quote unquote read law without actually going to school to kind of like get up to speed. So she found a way to get into Aldrich and Brown law firm while having three children doing laundry and keeping her home in order. So no big deal. She took exams and passed them. And I have seen in some ads that she became a lawyer. So it's an 18780s lawyer. I don't know what kind of credentials she had, but she was able to um, get admitted to the bar and able to make a case in front of a jury. And apparently astonished a courtroom with the force of her presence. Is that is that like a astonish the courtroom because she was such a good speaker or astonish the courtroom because there's a, a little bit of both. By all accounts, she is tall, has a deeper voice and is a woman. So all of these things is shocking to people. Um, mm-hmm. She also makes good arguments and speaks very well, which is you don't ever see that 
Well, you're starting to see it, but you don't, it's not common. Charles is not a huge fan. <laughs> he, mm, he doesn't like it. And they maybe have some scuffles at home. It doesn't, it doesn't go great, but she gets some publicity from that because she starts to get more speaking gigs. 1880s, government, Wall Street, don't super like labor unions, don't like the way labor movement is taking on. And a party is developed called the People's Party, also known as the Populists. And they try to appeal to labor unions. Farm anyway, we're going to get into it because I want to talk about populism in general. Most interestingly, the places that they are the driving force of the movement are Kansas and Nebraska as hotspots because they are deep in this farm conflict with the East as the East mm -hmm. sort of reaps the benefits of the West's bounty. Um, all of the people in the West are suffering and taking the most risk by their, by their viewpoint. It also reeks a lot of like maybe a famine that her parents had left and she's not a big fan. It's like genuinely yeah, the same pattern. So she maybe was a little more attuned to it. So populism, 1860-1890 is where I started my research, but there's kind of a history of populism in America specifically because it's it, the basics of it is like, I'm going to appeal to the common masses so that they vote for me. In a democracy, it makes sense. So I'm going to talk about yeah. the thing that is driving their need. However, it takes a very specific kind of, it, it crystallizes into its own political party in the late 19th century. And it takes different forms as we go along. Like it becomes the progressive party for Teddy Roosevelt. And it becomes, it, it sort of becomes the New Deal Democrats a few decades later with the other Roosevelt. And then it becomes, anyway, we'll get there. So the nation's recovering after Civil War, plus the Industrial Revolution and Western expansion. There's a lot of coal mining, steel production, farming, uh, factory work. Farming is a big field of wealth, as we talked. There's also like a big tech achievement. Like there's a lot of industrialization of, of farming equipment, which means farms mm -hmm. massive produce in a different way. And thus they are more exciting opportunity. Farmer, this is so basic, but this is what I've come to understand. Thank you, History Channel, for making this video. That was super helpful. The farmers need this new tech to compete in the market. They take out loans from banks in the East to buy all this equipment and invest in land and technology. They then have very steep loans with people that have never set foot on a farm. They are now dependent on creditors for the money it takes to run their farm. Problematic. Then they start to integrate grain prices into the world. Grain prices start to integrate into U.S markets. So mm -hmm. the grain prices that the farmers could count on beforehand are now subject to really cheap grain from really awful labor practices elsewhere. So the price of all of their crop is fluctuating in a way that they can't predict and therefore they lose money left and right because they just can't they they have uncertainty of pricing. That with uh, in the 1870s, in particular, when 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 Mary Lease and her husband are floating around the Kansas Texas area, there is a, in there's a drought. There is really severe weather that takes a hold and just can devastate a farming community with lasting effect over many years. So you've got this huge loan. You're ready. You're prepped. You just planted all your crop. 
Okay, well, we have a whole bunch of grain coming in from other countries, and you just got hit with a drought, and you owe the bank, and you just can't get out ahead of it. Monopolies on the railroad industry also drive up transport costs. So even if you do get grain, by the time you try and get it to where people can buy it, the prices change so much and the fees to get it there devastate your profit. And mm-hmm. the government is not providing any kind of federal aid. It's it's a time of, what is it, all of that um, monopoly era mm-hmm. uh, secret club Thanks teapot dome scandal whatever all that nonsense was where you know it's big government in the worst way where the rich are getting richer poor are getting poorer and there's just a lot more people that along with like i said like the the population explodes and Mm -hmm. there's immense need for all of these things but the banks really take on a different tone so All of that turns into these disenfranchised people in these communities, in labor, factories, uh, mines, uh, women (laughs) sewing, you know, women sewing shirt sleeves or whatever, and farmers Mm -hmm. to be like, this, no one is fighting for us in genuine, like everyone has got a friend in a bank somewhere and that's who is in charge of these policies that totally screw us over. And, like, why is there a monopoly on the one train that can take all these things over there? Anyway. So the populist party is formed by all of those folks. And their their general platform is you recognize the use and and prosperity of a labor union, all labor unions. Mm -hmm. You regulate transport industries and you break up monopolies to provide a better market. They seek to have a progressive income tax. They are for women's suffrage. They pursue working environment changes like the, um, oh, I don't know if they got into child labor as much as an eight hour work day and even like trimming down the amount of days you work in a week. And mm-hmm. the most specific one that I found fascinating was direct election of senators because yes, prior to right, that's- everyone, you guys, this is what I just found out, which I'm sorry. I didn't know this before before 1913, Senators for the state to go to Congress were appointed by the state legislature. Isn't that bonkers? That is so problematic. <laughs> it's so bonkers. But you can see how if it's a corrupt system of wealth and greed, you and the state legislature are going to appoint your friend to go. It's like, oh, yeah, bureaucracy gone mad. It's so It's such a bad idea. So... If they have a say in the senators, that means they have a say in the more of the federal government besides the presidency mm-hmm. and the Congress. So it just kind of, you know, brings the power back to the people. And now we vote for our own senators, which is great. Yeah. yeah. Which means you have to appeal to the whole state, which means you have to kind of be a little more chill, hopefully. Hopefully. It doesn't necessarily. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily happen, but that's Always. the kind of goal, right? But you can see mm-hmm. also, like, to give them credit, you can see why they did that because all of those guys were English making these rules and they had a house of lords and a house of commons. And we sort of talked about it last week when I was in the, my Mari Black story where like commons is elected, lords are appointed. So this is sort of the analog of that. Yeah. So. And it's, it's a, sort of the response to like, we don't really a hundred percent trust the people to make the right choice. hundred percent. Yeah. Put yeah. Which is why you have like a representative layer. government to begin with. Cause someone has to exactly. understand why it, why you need a public health service. Um, anywho, they were, go figure, popular, thus populism. They are of the people, populist. 
they as a as a party as a movement they nominate their own person for president and in 1892 he gets 8% of the vote and five states electoral votes so they wow. they are popular you know they are a force to be reckoned with his name was James Weaver 1894 they have eight members of congress elected However, they do have some issues as they are a new political faction. They also have factions within that are called nativists. Um, nativists are problematic because they think uh, immigration is bad. Black people are, they have problems with anybody that's not a certain type of person. Um, mm-hmm. You might see some maybe inklings of that in modern day society that have lingered. Yeah, There's a tone. What's really interesting is like what your your use of the word faction suggests to me that that's not the only wing of this party, and it's really interesting because it feels at least where I sit right now in the world that like that is the only populism as populism <clears throat> that we really have at the moment. Girl, we're gonna get there. So yes, some uh, some of a group like I, needless to say, this is a group founded by white people in a lot of ways. So a lot of people within that party have a lot of issues of how to include African-American or other races into the party. It's it's a American problem. Tale as old as time. Uh, some white people can't deal. I should, I should note that Mary Elizabeth Lease was like, nope, we're not tolerating that kind of rhetoric. Everybody's involved. Women's suffrage. Black people have the right to vote. Like, we're, we're all people. We're all, it's about money. It's about great. She is the Bernie freaking Sanders of her time. She's like, Wall Street is where your problem is. The money. Follow the money. And that's where the problem mm-hmm. is. You're mad at black people because of money. Like, it's that, you know what I mean? They're they're polluting your ideals so that you fight each other so that you don't come and fight them. We all just want to have a little home and to pay off our debts and to prosper. We want to prosper in this country, but you will not let us. You are willing to let us start. Anyway, we'll get there. 1896, the party ends up... um, This is kind of interesting if you're thinking of political parties because Republicans start with Lincoln and they are Mm -hmm. the party of Lincoln, quote unquote, and they're seen as like radical progressives as the Civil War kind of changes that. And then this is kind of an interesting moment in 1896 where the populist party kind of aligns itself with Democrats. They got in a little bit better with the Democratic Party at this time because... Of various factions, but they could just that I think there's a certain amount of like the South was also very disenfranchised after the war in terms of being able to mm-hmm. prosper. So you can see a lot of ideals lining up, but this is where it gets a little problematic with their bringing everybody into that populism field in the Democratic South in 1896 is hard and Jim Crow is taking over. So there's a lot of ideals that are trying to meld together. And then there's a lot of association of Republicans in in these um, eastern cities that are rich and wealthy and um, having a problem. I can't remember if Cleveland was a Republican or not. All those guys with mustaches, though. It's like, it's a weird time. McKinley. Oh, God, yeah, that right? must, the whole mustache period. And Roosevelt's, the first Roosevelt's a Republican initially, but then when he runs again, he doesn't get the Republican nomination, and he forms the Progressive Party in 1912, which is kind of, it, it takes from the Populist Party of these 1890s. So mm-hmm. that's kind of populism in a nutshell at this point. And then I think what's interesting as you're talking about, oh, I'm sorry, 1896, they line with Democrats. They nominate this this firebrand named William Jennings Bryan. Big mm-hmm. deal. He ran for president Very three times. Deal. He 
he's like the great he could have done it person. He had he just never does. He never could I don't know. I haven't done a lot of research into like why he couldn't quite nail it, but his rhetoric was always the thing that put him in the forefront. Um he served as Secretary of State. He's a big deal. You should look at him. He's kind of fascinating. Um he got pretty close, but he never actually cinched it. He was, by all accounts, a populist. He was able to appeal to that. He's a fascinating fella. I would do a deep dive on him if this wasn't about women. So, Because um, he's pretty interesting. He also was anti-evolution, so he had a lot of problems too. But um, he's sort of this interesting... He's an epitome of the 1890... The great turn of the century there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they nominate him for president. He does pretty good. And then as you get into the 20th century, populism sort of takes different tacks. As I said, like Teddy Roosevelt gets in there. They do a lot of reforms. He does a lot of union busting in a good way. Um, he also does a lot with like protecting the land and national parks and things like that. He also is a warmonger and is terrible in a lot of other ways. But And then as you get into the 30s, Huey Long was brought up as a really interesting person, which you should also read Mm -hmm. about if you had it. I've listened to the dollop episode about. Oh, he's fascinating. And without Huey Long, you wouldn't have FDR having the New Deal in a lot of ways. Redistribution of wealth, all of these things. So it takes takes a left-leaning populism for the first Mm -hmm. half of a century. And then what I think is fascinating is about 1950s, McCarthy... And the Republicans start to weigh in on speaking to the populace in terms of their agenda. And in my viewpoint, it was one of fear and what you should be scared of and playing upon those um, ideals of the time. So then you take this sort of fear and isolationist ideals that are, you can see it in the nativists that started in this party. Like it's, there was always mm-hmm. been two factions of like the more progressive socialist side of things. And then the, the akin with right alongside it, which is so interesting, right alongside it is the, the, the nativist, um, <laughs> what's his name? Bill the butcher from gangs of New York guy. Who's like, you weren't born here. You're not an American. It's like, where are you from, Bill? What, are you a Cherokee? What are you talking about? You're not born here either in a lot of ways. Those have always been within. So as you see populism Mm -hmm. in the 21st and 20th century, you see the the Red Scare and the persecution of communists within the government and society in the 50s and the isolation and terrible feelings with that. And then it goes back to, and then we kind of, I don't know, we don't really have a lot. And then you see Barack Obama is pulled a lot of those populist ideals. Bernie Sanders. I mean, there's a reason that Bernie Sanders and Trump were so appealing in the same year. Those are literally the mm-hmm. two factions of the populist movement in two, yeah. in two different people. Ross Perot, I think, is a really good candidate for that. Where mm-hmm. he, he came in and he had this kind of third party mentality of like, I just want to fix the people. I have rational ideas about economy. I also think uh, all people are people. Like, he was pretty modern and he had a lot going for him um but then you get into like now donald trump is pulling all of those policies from mccarthyism and and even this nativists in the 1890s of like they're coming to mm-hmm. get you uh you need to defend yourself you need to be scared everyone wants to hurt you i'm here to help you and protect you and no one understands no one understands your woes everyone is too elite and the big banks and and big news and big 
They don't understand you, the common man, and I do. I understand the common man. It's that kind of vibe. It's why you hear. It's why you hear about. Oh, he just. You know, he did. He got. They agree. They they think he sees them in that way. I'm not bought out by big business. AOC does it. She's like, my campaign is not funded by anyone except the voter. Like it's Elizabeth Warren pulls onto that rhetoric a lot. Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders pulls into that. I'm not a career politician. I'm not a Washington swampy person. You know, Washington I take insider. I take coach flights. You know, I, I sit in economy. I take the bus. Even Joe yeah. Biden says it too. I took the train from Delaware every day. Like that's totally the same kind of tactic. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's sort of populism in a nutshell up until our current moment. So try and find your own in the campaigns in your state. They exist <laughs> everywhere. But we'll go back to Mary. So Mary's at the start of this sort of formation of a party. And she is, she's got a look, right? She often dresses in black. She's very tall, slender, uh, deep voice but a strong speaking style she wore her hair in a bun on top of her head so she would look totally fine now if she came to the she'd be right in Mm -hmm. yeah she also apparently wore a hat that would help accentuate her height so she she (laughs) wanted to like create a presence right so like full abraham lincoln she just like giving you a full look so you remember her she apparently never mm-hmm. spoke from notes. She always wanted to look right in the eye of the person and speak from the heart. She wanted to connect with people and she wanted to bring her personal experience. Um, one of her most famous quotes often used in speeches in the rural areas was you farmers need to raise less corn and more hell. And in those days, a tall <laughs> slender woman with a giant hat on and a black dress saying the word hell shocking beyond belief. But apparently she could really connect with people. She's the daughter of immigrants. She's talking to people who are the children of immigrants or immigrants themselves. She could speak to what how hard it was to try farming in multiple states. She could talk about her past in Pennsylvania with her family. Everyone had experienced devastating loss with the Civil War, her family included. So she, she makes a name for herself and she's apparently really, really convincing and and successful at it so she goes on the road she earns a living for it she makes more she provides for her family in a way she never could with farming and she would often take one of her children with her on these trips and help have them help with some of the planning and like get them to participate um she speaks at conventions yeah this this life on the road sort of takes a toll on her marriage and they sort of begin to live separately by 1902 they end up divorcing but her relationship with her children is actually really positive, And I think she ends up staying with them as they grow older and settle. So she always kind of has a home base. Nice. As the populist party sort of moves and negotiates in the later 19- 1890s, they fuse with the Democrats. And then it, she doesn't enjoy that for a lot of reasons we've already talked about. So she's like, I don't think we need to get in bed with anybody but ourselves. And we need to not deal with these people that killed my dad and all of this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. she gets into some bad press with, uh, a populist governor named Lorenzo Llewelling, who was elected into office and she openly criticizes his administration, but then, so then she gets alienated because of it, because he's in power and able to kind of distance himself and is seen as the leader of a party in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so she starts to kind of back away. 
Yeah, I mean, they they felt great satisfaction with Teddy Roosevelt actually getting into power because that's sort of seen as a populist president in a lot of ways. He did a lot of mm-hmm. he did a lot of good for their cause. So she continues to speak and be active and motivate in all of these different places. Uh, sometime after she oh she also begins to write a column in 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 so, several newspapers. Let's see. She is, quote, here's a good quote from her. In these later years, I have seen with gratification that my work in the good old populist days was not in vain. The Progressive Party, 1912, has adopted our platform, clause for clause, plank by plank. Note the list of reforms which we advocated, which are coming into reality. Direct election of senators is assured. Public utilities are gradually being removed from the hands of the few and placed under the control of the people who use them. Women's suffrage is now almost a national issue. The seed we sowed out in Kansas did not fall on barren ground. So she can see ahead and like see the momentum that they've caused. She never held public office. She, oh, yeah. So she moves to New York uh, sometime after 1896 and settles there. She could do a really nice public lecture circuit while receiving payment while being there. She also goes as far Mm -hmm. as California to speak. She speaks on a variety of topics. Hired to report for Joseph Pulitzer, Pulitzer, National Encyclopedia of American Biography, and the New York Press Bureau. All of her children eventually moved to New York, um, and they all live there. In her later years, she also buys a farm in the Delaware Valley near Calicoon, New York, and that's where she sort of settled into her older age. And we don't know much about her after that point, besides where she spoke and things like that. Um, but by November of 1933, she had passed away on October 29th. A uh, newspaper had reported that she had passed away in October of 1933. Mm-hmm. So in her lifetime, she was able to see direct election of senators, labor unions organize and motivate, women's suffrage get passed. Uh, she was also a teetotaler. So... Or there was, I don't know if she was, but populism was one big faction of that. Along with suffrage, you always have to take prohibition as like a big part of it. So she saw both the start of prohibition and I don't think it ended until 32, 33. So she might have seen prohibition in its entirety. First World War, um, she had quite a span of life. But what I find most, the reason that I find this interesting, I'm almost done. I know this is a long one. Wizard of Oz. Populism. Okay. Do you know this kind of anal- uh, allegory vibe? No. Oh, my God. Okay. This is so fun. So I remember getting the story told to me. I think my dad told me when I was learning about it in American history in high school, where we were on William Jennings Bryan and, and all of this kind of time frame. And he was like, well, you know, one theory is that L. Frank Baum was a populist and he was telling an allegory of the time, but it's actually a really good children's story. I'm looking up when exactly it was released because I didn't ahead of time. 1900. So he's right in the middle of it. L. Frank Baum is also like from, no, he's from California. He's from New York. Just kidding. I thought he was a Plains person because of Kansas, but maybe that's wrong. The South Dakota years. Yeah, he goes West. So, if you're thinking of The Wizard of Oz, there, the allegory goes, this is written about in the 20th century where they, there's a couple papers written about it and somebody did a really mm-hmm. deep dive about how it totally correlates. So, I'm just going to go through the basics. The Wicked Witch of the East and West represent 
uh, industrialists and bankers who controlled the people who are munchkins. Okay. I've also seen it seen as like uh, their direct analogs of political presidents at the time. So Cleveland was the East and McKinley was the Witch of the West. Mm-hmm. Scarecrow is the wise but naive farmer who doesn't have a brain and he's not able okay. to. Yeah. The Tin Woodman is t- uh, uh, the the Tin Man is um, the dehumanized industrial worker with no heart. The Cowardly Lion was William Jennings Bryan, populist presidential candidate in 1896. The Yellow Brick Road, with all its dangers, was the gold standard at the time. There was this big faction in the populist party about gold mm-hmm. being the standard of currency versus silver. And if you yeah. look at the original book, Dor- Dorothy wears silver slippers. So the idea was that silver will take you through with more success than this static golden road to a land of the emerald city what is green cash baby (laughs) um yeah so anyway hang on we're not even we're not even done the emerald city was also washington dc the wizard a little bumbling old man hiding behind a facade of paper mache and noise able to be everything to everybody was any of the gilded age presidents Mm -hmm. dorothy's faithful dog named toto this is a stretch for the teetotalers, <laughs> Toto teetotaling okay. prohibitionists. Sorry. Okay. There's also, this one's really good. So this one is with the silver gold analog. So like 16 ounces of silver is one ounce of gold. That's the like conversion factor, 16 mm-hmm. to one. And so ounces are a big deal at this time. This is such a stretch. But people like to say, like, the abbreviation for ounce is Oz, O-Z. So there's, like, an ounce factor. And then a literary scholar named Brian Atterbury wrote, it is too much to say that the wizard is a parable on populism, but it does share many of the populist concerns and biases. Oh, the fact that Dorothy is also, like, in Kansas trying to, like, make it work and, like, dreams of a better Mm -hmm. tomorrow. I mean, it's, come on. Um, he went on to suggest an analogy of his own that Dorothy, bold, resourceful, leading the men around her towards success, is a juvenile Mary Lease, the Kansas firebrand who told her neighbors to raise less corn and more hell. And I was like, oh, I had never heard, I I had heard um, the Tin Man, the Wizard, the Silver Standard thing, but I had never heard Mm -hmm. who Dorothy was. And I was like, oh, it's this lady. It's this populist lady. That's sweet to think about. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's Mary Elizabeth Lee. And then I found her and then found out this Wizard of Oz connection of this story I was told a long time ago. And I was like, oh, that's cool because I could do a deep dive on that. But I found her through this monologue series that Brooklyn Academy Music put on. Um, and they had, sorry, they had um, um, just really kick butt actors read lectures and stories from people from the past to speak to our current time. So this is from in the people speak. Some of today's leading performers and artists give voice to figures neglected by history. The mechanization of farming in the late 19th century forced small farmers to borrow money to pay for the equipment. When they could not pay, their farms were taken away. They began to organize forming the populist movement in the 80s and 90s. Here are the words of its most one of its most important leaders, Mary Elizabeth Lees, performed by Frances McDormand, March 21st, 2017, in the Bam Howard Gilman Opera House. So this yes. is 2017. This is a nation of inconsistencies. 
The Puritans fleeing from oppression became oppressors. We fought England for our liberty and put chains on four million of blacks. The great common people of this country are slaves and monopoly is the master. Wall Street owns the country. It is no longer a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, but a government of Wall Street, by Wall Street, and for... <laughs> Money rules. Our laws are the output of a system which clothes rascals in robes and honesty in rags. The parties lie to us and the political speakers mislead us. We were told two years ago to go to work and raise a big crop. That was all we needed. We went to work and plowed and planted. The rains fell, the sun shone, nature smiled, and we raised the big crop that they told us to. And what came of it? Eight cent corn, 10 cent oats, two cent beef, and no price at all for butter and eggs. That's what came of it. Then the politician said we suffered from overproduction. Overproduction? When 10,000 little children, so statistics tell us, starve to death every year in the United States of America. We want money, land, and transportation. We want the accursed foreclosure system wiped out. We still stand by our homes. We will not pay our debts to the loan shark companies until the government pays its debts to us. The people are at bay, so let the bloodhounds of money beware. Isn't that good? I was like, Francis McDormand, I think you're the right person to cast in that role for sure. Yes. When we make the movie, she gets first dibs. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. That is so interesting because it, like the, some of that language sounds so similar, Mm -hmm. but I don't think you would ever quite hear all of that coming from the same person right now. Like it feels like I was like, great. Yeah. If you took like some of like a Bernie speech and some of a Trump speech. Yeah, it's just it's that and mixed it together. Yeah, I mean it's very fascinating how we how we speak now and how some people think of it as like a, a devaluing of the rhetoric and the the way people communicate. I think it's it's a lot of things. It's just the nature of we're a more casual society. There's a lot less propriety, and that's good and bad. But it is it. It is one of the best things about history when something from 130 years ago makes you feel and Mm -hmm. it connects you with those people. So then all of a sudden you understand their problems in a way that's not dusty and dried up. It's it's what is the same? Why can't we fix this? You know what I mean? These things are the same problems. So Mm -hmm. don't act like everything's better. Like things are the same. And maybe some of their arguments can help yours today. Um, in terms of moving forward, but yeah, I, I, I so appreciate it. There's a couple other lectures in there by actors that are just really, they have really good voices and they're just very talented people. Um, Mm -hmm. there's also a series of where people 
this was in the Bush years. There was a series that they did where they had performers read each amendment of the Constitution. And they did it to kind of speak to the progress made with each amendment. So there's certain performers that they picked. And the one that was most uh, impressive to me is the, when they did the 13th Amendment, they had like Ozzie Davis read it. So they had this like fixture of African-American arch uh, acting uh, come up and he has like the best voice of all time. And he reads the 13th Amendment. And they had, uh, I forget who they had read the women's suffrage amendment, but... 19th Amendment? 19. Yeah, anyway, there's some fun stuff. I'm just saying, there's some fun stuff on YouTube. That's not all TikTok-y nonsense. <laughs> TikToks are fine, too. They're just not for me. But yeah, so that's Mary Elizabeth Lease, Kansas Firebrand, and Dorothy Allegory. Amazing. I did not think we would get that kind of combination. That's fabulous. It's pretty wild. This is a long one. That's my fault. It's okay. You did have to distill like several decades of American political history into like a single. There were some really good um, videos, some quick like, what was populism, you know, by mm -hmm. uh, History Channel and stuff. And they, it was really good because it was like a vague recollection of the William Jennings Bryan story. And I don't know. I always think of like Taft and Cleveland, anybody with a big old mustache. Yeah. I have like yes. a Tammany Hall brain thinking like is that time too, right? Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. So basically like the cast of Gangs of New York in my head, um, black and white <laughs> pictures of big old fat men with mustaches. Mm -hmm. And then like Edith Wharton novels, you know, a kind of a combo. Yeah. Late That's, Victorian yeah, but... times. That feels like the sort of right mental image to have. Well, do we want to jump back in? I yeah, I'm ready. I always like finding the connections between Our Lady. It's a good never exercise. Really do that attention. Mm -hmm. um, and there's two different connections I think I see this week. One super significant, one really asinine. I'm going to start with the asinine one. I'm going to talk about Mary Sherman Morgan today. Another three-name woman starts with Mary. Yeah. I love that the... you just threw asinine in. Like, everybody says that all the time after we talked about how we speak now. <laughs> I might have to look that up. I mean, I think I know what it means, but I'm not going to... I wouldn't bet on it. Uh, I think I probably could have just said dumb. Oh, extremely stupid or foolish. It's better than dumb. Foolish is very specific. Mm -hmm. so, asinine. Yep, got it. Okay. So that's the one. I think if I'm looking at our list, we have done in our past two episodes, four Marys. Three, it's a three. good name. I'm a Mary. Yeah. Fun fact. It's like, I did know that, but I do always enjoy relearning that Surprise. fact. Well, there's a lot of Marys. You know why I'm a Mary? Because there's a ton of Marys in our family, just everywhere. Just It's hard to do genealogy because there's so many Marys. Mm -hmm. And then when you're a woman, your name changes the farther back you go, pretty much guaranteed. Every Mary is twice. So, so the only thing that wait, the only thing they have in common is they have three names. That's the that's one of the two things they two have things. in common. Okay. The other thing, which I think is actually much more meaningful, is that Mary Sherman Morgan sort of represents the end of the like process you were talking about for like farmers in the West. Mm -hmm. um, sort of like that the like dust bowly like we've over farmed this part of the country. Like we can't get anything to grow here. Life is really hard. Like it's still challenging being a farmer out West thing. And I feel like that kind of like 
wraps up in the like 20s and 30s like sort of post 1940s we get like this whole like very different relationship to farming Mm -hmm. and you don't really get that sort of like same like hard scrabble family farm image and so like mary my mary is like very much the end of that process where she like is going to grow up on this farm with her family and have to like work this farm and it's going to be really hard and like they might not necessarily make it but it's like the 1920s rather than like the 1880s also a bad time yeah yeah i mean there's just like not really ever a great time to be like a small farmer in america it seems it's hard it's for sure hard yeah as a a person who never farms i'm gonna speak from zero experience here Mm -hmm. um but it does seem challenging so those are those are the two connections that i drew but we're not gonna talk about farming we're gonna talk about space i mean we're gonna talk about farming a little bit to get to space like outer space space. like outer space not like what are you gonna do in this space i don't know entertain everybody loves to entertain in spaces (laughs) we don't do that anymore though what are we gonna do with all of our entertaining spaces Right now they're laundry, like, uh, service stations, and um, shelves. There are always like a lot of shelves <laughs> just with furniture. But yeah. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I, I definitely have turned mine into like book storage. Just mm-hmm. Lots of book storage. Just lots of storage. Um, yeah. Look at what a closet yeah. you have in this living room. Mm-hmm. But no, we're not going to talk about interior design today. We're going to talk about space. Are you going to, are you going to, I almost yelled a year at the beginning of mine. Are you going to yell your year? Or are we appropriating that too much? We're going to start with a year, but like think of this as like the information you get at the beginning of a play where it's like the time, November 1921, mm-hmm. the place, rural North Dakota, yeah. a town named Ray, yeah. population 550. Yeah, yeah. Do it as program notes. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. That's our so own those spin. Those are the program notes. Mm-hmm. That's where we're at. That is the, the place we're starting. Okay. Very much small farming town in North Dakota. Mary Sherman is born November 4th. 1921 she is the youngest of six children born to michael and dorothy sherman Mm -hmm. who are a good catholic family which is why there are six children two marys who are catholic peace be with you same here yeah that's a big (laughs) factor too got it cool uh they are as we've mentioned farmers uh and the children all six of them work on the farm to help their parents make ends meet as my mom would say why do you think we had you (laughs) this farm is huge get on board exactly and actually kind of from the moment she can work up until age eight doesn't have any formal schooling when she's eight the school district finds out that like there's a bunch of kids on this farm and none of them are going to school and convince her parents to like start sending her to school Mm -hmm. and apparently as part of that deal they gave her a horse so that she could get to good deal it seems like a really good deal. I guess we just like hadn't figured out buses yet. Um, what year is it? Did you say? The, she would have been, this would have been like 1929, 1930. So like just starting into that Great Depression. I imagine like I mean, not a great time for like rural don't schools. have buses now. I mean, like it's yeah. Yeah. And the reason I say like apparently is because a lot of what we know about Mary comes from a book written by her son, which is really mm-hmm. cool. But her son is also a, like a playwright. And so in like reading some reviews of this book, it's a little stylized. Yeah. And so we might have to take some of this, like the, the cooler stories with like a, just a little grain of salt. Still going to tell the cooler stories, like getting a horse to go to school because mm-hmm. I think it like helps give the flavor mm-hmm. and I think the same way he would have wanted it. So she's eight. She has a horse. She's going to school. 
she turns out. Can you imagine? Really good at school. Riding your buggy along a country road and you see an eight-year-old on a horse just taking, no. taking over, just doing what they need. No supervision. Just, just like little backpack Hope they on, have shoes on like, kind of thing. Like, I guess you know directions. You're eight. I knew where I was going when I was eight. Please. Oh my God. That's be so scary. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm very, I guess, right? Like if you spent those previous eight years like working on a well, farm. Well, wait, there's six of them. So she's probably not by herself on the horse. It's probably a couple I mean, that's kids the thing. on there, right? <laughs> I couldn't figure out if it was the kind of thing where, like, they just sent her to school or if, like, they found this whole house full of kids not going to school and they're like, you all need to be going to school. Because mm. um, they're definitely, like, I mean, some of the stories we've told, right, with these big families where, like, they decide to send one of their kids to school because they can't spare the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not really sure if it's that situation or if, right, if it's all, like, all five or all six of them on the horse together mm-hmm. all going to school. Mm-hmm. So she's there, riding the horse to school. She's really good at school. Really smart. Really good at math. Really good at science. She being a woman in the 1930s, people are like a little surprised by this. She's not. She's like, no, of course I'm good at this. It's the thing I'm good at. Um, And she actually graduates high school in 1940 as the valedictorian of her high school. Oh, cool. So she is super smart. And because she's super smart, she wants to go to Mm -hmm. college. Her parents... Don't want her to go to college. Not a lot of funds for they college, They would like her probably. no money. They want her to stay home, work on the farm, help them out. Yeah. Um, she doesn't really want to do that. And so being the good Catholic that she is, she starts applying to colleges, but like uses the parish church as her mailing address. Ooh, so all of her mail tricky. goes there rather than to her house. So her parents can't figure tricky it out. Tricky Mary lying to your yeah. parents. Come on. And the the story goes that she asked the priest's help during confession. So if he said no, he couldn't tell anyone about it. She's very tricky. She's very smart. She she got those Catholic rules down. She knows what's up. She knows how to break things the way they need to be broken. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, So the priest was apparently very chill and helped her. And she applies to Minot State University, which is in... If you're the priest, Dakota. aren't you listening to that confession? And you're like, you're too smart. Yeah, I see why you need to go to college. Like, this needs to be put into, like, proper use. You know? This needs yeah. to be put Once... into a constructive means. <laughs> yeah, you certainly hope so. And so, as the story goes, she graduates high school. And the next day, or I guess technically the next night, she runs away from home. Never to go back. Oh, that's a little sad, but okay. A little bit. But she goes to college. She's attending college at Minote State University, which is in North Dakota. She's studying chemistry. She is, again, really good at it. So good at it, in fact, that when this big event happens, like a year later, 1941, oh, yeah. there's this like World War sitch that's happening. Well, it had been going on for a little bit, but we decided to help out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some shenanigans happen. That's not a very fair way of saying it. Devastating loss happened and we had to participate. Yeah. So the U.S. enters the war. Pearl Harbor, you guys. We're talking about Pearl Harbor. (laughs) You should know that. I don't know. I don't know how asleep you were in history class. Anyway. Yep. There's a Michael Bay movie about it. Don't worry about it. Okay. Which is like, it's a fine movie. It's fine. Do we need a romance? No. Anyway. Anyway. She does what? So she is studying chemistry, and all of a sudden, all of these guys get drafted to go off to war. Yeah. So all of the dudes who had been chemists at, like, 
factories and labs and stuff all of a sudden have to go fight. Right. But we still need chemists. Right. Because we need to make, like, bombs and other things that involve chemistry to fight the war. Yeah. Um, I'm so so scared she's going to go Manhattan Project. No. Okay. So she's not going to go Manhattan Project, (gasps) unfortunately. Um, Unfortunately. But she is... I think it'd be. I think she would have done great work with the Manhattan Project. Okay. Uh, but she heads in like a slightly different direction. So she gets recruited to work at a factory in Ohio, mm-hmm. and they don't tell her what she's going to do before she signs the contract. But she's like, "This is good money. I want to like help my country. Yeah. It's cool that they're hiring me without having to like finish my degree." Mm-hmm. And then she like rolls up, and it turns out she's working at an explosives factory, Ooh. making TNT Ooh. and like bombs and things like that. Ooh, okay. Which. Like, when you think about it, you're like, yeah, you probably want a pretty I mean, good chemist making those it is, things. It is very, I find it very impressive and admirable, like, the way America went to war in those kinds of wars. Because I don't think we have them anymore. I don't think we will. But, um, yeah, everybody, like, focuses on one thing. And, like, the the commonality of, like, we're going to ration, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. We need everybody to put their efforts into this. Um, you know, I think the UK did it too. We just don't, I don't know what it would take for us to kind of do that today. It doesn't feel like we can. Um, Right. And it's like, there are things, arguably, that like, we do need to do that Well, it's like we had the great crystalline moment where everyone is affected, which is a pandemic. And we're not all doing the same thing. We're not all participating in the relief effort. Where I think that Mm -hmm. we, I don't know if it's right if the government should ask us to do that. I I genuinely don't. Because I get the argument of like, individualism i get it but at the same time when everybody is suffering it doesn't actually help anybody so mm-hmm. i don't know tangent yeah. sorry so she's no, it's, making bomby bombs tnt she's anyway. making tnt bombs big explosives can i tangent this is again? like you know didn't the guy that invent tnt make the nobel peace prize yeah, okay. Alfred Nobel. Great. He like felt real bad about like yeah. inventing this thing that people used to kill each other yeah. all the time. Yeah. Yeah, pay it forward, guys, you know? Yeah. Uh, It's almost like we just, like, don't think about the ramifications of what we do until we've already done it. Or you make something positive, but inevitably somebody tries to make something awful out of it. Yeah, Yeah, which, like, is pretty par for the course with people. But the interesting thing is, like, this, her story is sort of the opposite of that. It's like people made something pretty terrible, and then we did something cool with it. Okay. Which I think is, like, sort of the metaphor. That's, like, my working metaphor for the space program. I'm, like... The space program was born out of, like, German Nazi missile programs from the Second World War and, like, us trying to build intercontinental ballistic missiles. Mm -hmm. And then we were like, but we could also, like, go to space with this stuff. Well, and also that was, like, like, we have to do it before the Russians, which is mm -hmm. such a stupid reason to seek information out. But I feel like all the scientists and answer was like, sure, the Russians, but we're going to go to space and we're actually going to study all this stuff and it's going to be amazing. But yeah, no, the Ru- we're going to beat the Russians. And like, yeah, if that's why you want to give us the money, fine. But we just want to study rocks when we're out there and gamma rays and nebulas and take pictures and like the nerdiest of nerds gets out there and actually finds out more about life than a race because of Russians ever could, you know? But, you know, yeah. I'll take it. If that's how we get out there, great. Because... The amount of good it did is also huge. And it's I never thought about the tie-in with like rockets or like uh, missiles from the World War. I never put that together. 
Yeah, so that's, I think, like, one of the really interesting things about, like, early days NASA is that a lot of the the people building those early rockets are actually the German rocket scientists right. who are building, like, the V1 and the V2 okay. missiles. Okay, that's gross. Okay. It is, right? So we just, like, we, like, picked like, them up and like we, like, brought them to Nazis? the Like, full-on Nazis? Like, full-blown Nazis? Like, the bad ones? It's, like, it's, like... <laughs> the villain in any movie? The- <laughs> There's a whole debate about like whether these guys were Nazis or they were just, they happened to be like scientists working in Germany in the 30s and 40s. And like in order to do that work, you like had to be the thing. But here's the thing. If you're building missiles for Hitler, not a good person. Full stop, (laughs) period. Just like there's no debate there. Um, (laughs) Michael, come in with the clarity. (laughs) That's that's my hot take at least. Hold on, hold on. We're too close to this. That's big picture. Are you making missiles for Hitler? Yeah, you're not a good guy. Sorry. Maybe, you know, you pay it forward later, but like one moment shouldn't define your life. But I mean, that's the way we roll sometimes. And I feel like a couple of years of consistently making missiles for Hitler. Yeah, no, it's not good. Yeah, you're clarifying Mm -hmm. it in a really good way. Yeah, it's helpful. Yeah. So we brought him Um, over here and made him make rocket ships. Yeah. And so that's kind of this like interesting. So it's the late 40s, early 50s. We've done this a lot, like sort of tried to get as much of that like technological know-how out of Germany, mostly because we didn't want the Soviets to get it, but also because we wanted it ourselves. And one of the big things are these missiles, Mm -hmm. because they're like, they were the only ones making big kind of accurate missiles. And we wanted to be able to shoot atomic bombs on the tops of missiles at the Soviets if they were up to anything. And so that is basically like what the the 50s in rocket world is building intercontinental ballistic missiles that can shoot mm-hmm. into the Soviet Union. Can I have a Russia question? Cause I always get confused. Mm-hmm. So this is my world war two knowledge. So we enter the war and we declare war on Japan and Germany and Italy. Mm-hmm. The big factor with Russia in the war is that they start out being friends with Germany and then halfway through some point, all of a sudden, Stalin's at Yalta with FDR and Churchill and everything's fine. And then we're all mm-hmm. friends. But then as soon as the war is over again, we're like, okay, we hate you again. Is that accurate? Yes. <laughs> kind of? <laughs> kind of. The, the thing that changes is like Germany invades the Soviet that's Union. That's what he does. Yeah. He, and that's in the winter, kinda, like a dum-dum, right? I mean, he doesn't start invading in the winter, but like it's big. And they You're burn down their own towns and they leave wreckage for them to find. And because the Russians are really good when you you try to invade them them. they're like okay cool we'll just burn down our entire city okay enjoy that bye we're russia we're huge okay okay so So germany invaded russia so hitler got go figure he got a little eager and wanted to conquer the world okay cool yeah Mm -hmm. that tracks yeah i remember that okay great yeah you don't i don't think yeah okay So stupid. So many megalomaniacs at the same time. It's just no wonder it happened when it happened. Middle of 20th century was quite a time. Yeah. Okay. So many reasons. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, so that that's, I mean, the big picture, yeah. So, and like, and even really before the war is over, but as it's like wrapping up, mm-hmm. the UK and the US is kind of like, we don't trust what you guys over there are up to. And yeah. Like sort of well, if you're watching that, you're like, like your best friend, not your best friend, but your ally just invaded you. And then you're not, it's war, right? It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so basically like the moment World War II ends, everyone's like, they like take that like the day, they breathe, <laughs> they go to Times Square, they kiss some people, yeah. we get photos of it. Yeah. And then pretty much the next day they're like, but now 
the Soviets are the existential threat. Yes. And then we're going to be on that train for a couple of decades. Yes. Because they're, they're evil communism and they've, their ideals have been here for a minute because they're coming out of the 30s. Well, they have their revolution in the teens, right? 1919? Mm-hmm. Okay. So they're like a... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... The Iron Curtain we and all that stuff. We have the Iron Curtain. We've got like this big threatening Soviet menace. Sort of you were talking about McCarthyism and the sort of populist Red Scare energy at the time. Mm-hmm. Everyone's worried about the Soviets. Mm-hmm. And then... Sort of all of a sudden, the Soviets launch a satellite. Sputnik. Sputnik. Right. It's like, we think we're doing really good. We're like, we are obviously so much better than them at all of these things. It like comes out of nowhere. We're like, how did they beat us? And we don't know what it's doing. Right? Like, yeah, we've like, chosen that the Soviets are our enemy. In a lot of ways. They are antagonistic, but we also chose them. Like, we are also like, we don't like you for many reasons. And then all of a sudden, they're going to, they're not going to tell you what they're doing. Because, anyway. And the great leveling thing is like, and there's atomic bombs on the table now. And both sides have them. Like, that's the great telling moment of the Cold War. And I think the thing I, like, hadn't realized about the Sputnik moment is that it's it kind of comes out of nowhere but on the other hand it's part of this like big UN project that's happening yeah. at that time called the International Geophysical Year yeah which is this year of like sponsoring all of these like scientific and research endeavors all across the world and it's sort of a UN attempt like to promote a little bit of internationalism and to fund some science mm-hmm. and so it's this big scientific year and so the like the Russians are like this is part of our contribution to this year is we're going to launch this satellite. And so it is both like surprising, mm-hmm. but also it's like, maybe you should have seen this. For, a, for a like diehard American who thinks like we're number one, I don't think about anything else but that. What do you think the day was like when we realized that the Russians had atomic bombs too? Cause there was a time right? there's a moment where we had them and we were the only ones that had them. And then you had to have known as a both a military person and a scientist that just because we had them doesn't mean somebody else couldn't make them. Yeah. That must have I been a crazy moment, day. I'm just I think that must have been like a terrifying, bonkers great kind of a day. knowledge, great responsibility kind of moment. And vice versa. Like as soon as anybody saw those being used, especially the poor people that it was affected upon, it's just that's a that's a moment. That is clearly a moment of like... The world is different now. Yes. It will always be yeah, different. And, and like not to tangent or tangent, but that's a big argument about why, like a lot of historians have argued that that's why the U.S. used the atomic bombs on Japan is partially about ending World War II, but also to show the Soviets that like, we've built these, these work, don't fuck with us. Yeah. Um, and like that was a sort of a consideration. Great defense um, is a good offense, right? Mm-hmm. So. mutually assured destruction all those crazy things we did yeah and so now we're just in like a western standoff you know what i mean i don't know if it's mm-hmm. pc that to say mixed. a mexican standoff is it mm-hmm. it's like from those spaghetti westerns right yeah okay we're we're just like we're standing there mm-hmm. we got our big nukes they have their big nukes pointing at each other mm-hmm. super phallic 
Yeah, there's a whole fun. lot of things about it. Yeah. There's a lot there's going on. There's a whole on, lot yeah. of nonsense about it. Okay. So this is all happening <laughs> in Spudnik. the 50s. We're here at Spudnik. A lot the great international on. science year. Okay, great. Yes. And Mary, who spends World War II making bombs, but then clues in that like bombs isn't necessarily where the future is. Space is where the future is. I think more importantly, she's like, and I need a job. Mm. And I'm going to lose my job to the dudes who are all coming back from the war. Because that's sort of a huge problem. Is like all of these women are working. And then all of these soldiers come back and they're like, we would like our jobs back, please. Yeah. And because it's the 40s, they fire all the women yeah. and give the dudes their jobs League back. They get their own. Best movie of all time. Probably one of my top five. Ugh. Could still watch it. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, because, like, what do you do, right? There's that great scene in that movie where he's like, do we want to tell the men coming home from war that they don't get to have their jobs back after they just won a war? That seems reasonable. Mm -hmm. Or do we tell the women who've done all the work to make that possible and who've, like, sacrificed a lot that, like, thanks, we're done with you. You can go go back to to not doing anything again. You know? Yeah. And so the way Mary handles that is she she pivots, as we would say. Mm -hmm. She goes to work for North American Aviation, which is one of these sort of like big companies that does a lot of things. The division she works for is their rocketry division. So here's where we, we, we head towards space. Mm-hmm. Um, and because she has all of this expertise from all of her explosives work, unsurprisingly, or I guess like it, it might be a weird way to think, but like a rocket is just basically a big controlled explosion. I was just going to say that. You want it to that. come out of the back. Yeah. So it goes in a direction. You want it to not uh, but there's a reason cause they blow up damage mess it up. to the thing that it's trying to propel. Yeah. Exactly. But so a lot of the like chemistry, a lot of the math and the physics behind it, very, very similar. It's a focused and explosion. Be- mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Focused, controlled explosion. You basically like, if you're good at bombs, odds are you're probably good at rockets. Okay. Or at least like the very specific part of rockets where you're like trying to produce the thrust and not make it explode. Okay. And so she, woman, no college degree, but is basically one of the experts in the country in this very specific thing goes to work for this big company she is the only woman on their engineering team of 900 people and she is one of the only people on that team who doesn't have a college degree she didn't ever get a degree she went right to the factory okay went right to the factory just works never feels like she needs to go back because like she's got a job practical experience yeah okay exactly and so you like you, you sort of get this weird thing where it's like she's there doing this kind of work very much in this weird, like, we don't quite know what to make. I mean, we know what to make of her. But, like, her colleagues are like, well, she's a woman. And she doesn't have a degree. But she's really good at this. And, like, we we need that. Mm-hmm. Um, so she does kind of live in this weird limbo where she's on the engineering team doing engineering work. But because she's a woman and she doesn't have a degree, she's an analyst, not an engineer. Because they, like, can't and won't give her that title. So she's getting paid less. But she's doing this, like, really important work, a metaphor for women in the 50s, stuck between those two things. So she's working out, like, how to figure out. So we have these rockets that we're designing. We mostly are trying to build missiles with them right now, but we want to get the sort of best thrust we can. Like, how do we pack the most oomph into these missiles without them blowing up, but also without them being too heavy? Like, there's sort of all these things you have to take into consideration when you're making a rocket. Mm -hmm. And... The problem the U.S. runs into. So October 1957, mm-hmm. Sputnik launches. Really embarrassing for What us. does Sputnik do? Pictures? 
That is like such an incredibly good question. Also, is he still up there? No, I don't think so. I think he like, here's the thing. I think he was only up there for like a couple of months. Oh, the Soviets used ICBM technology to launch Sputnik into space, which gave them two propaganda advantages over the U.S. at once. The capability to send a satellite into orbit and proof of the distance of their capabilities of their missiles. That proved that the Soviets had rockets capable of sending nuclear weapons to Western Europe and even North America. That's why it was so scary. That was the day Mm -hmm. that I was talking about where it's like, crap. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, so it's not cool. So that makes a lot of sense. So it's not really like, what does Sputnik as the satellite do? It's the sort of symbolism. And the space race begins, right? And the space race begins Mm -hmm. and the U.S. is already losing. And so given that, I think it makes a lot of sense then that like the U.S. is freaking out we that's need a to subtle do way of something putting it. It, they were panicking for sure panicking yes and so here's the problem though you don't just magic a space program into existence you can't just be like oh yeah we should put something up there and then like a day later you're you are to the u.s if you're the soviet union <laughs> they just did it uh they just did it but the u.s so they basically try to do the same thing the soviets did so they have these ICBMs, which are called Redstones, which are designed to shoot nukes Mm -hmm. long distances. They are not, though, designed to get satellites into space. Mm -hmm. It's like a slightly different, like one of them is like shooting them like sort of around the planet. The other one, you have to get it clear out of the atmosphere, which just takes a lot more. I think the technical term here is oomph. Mm -hmm. Like more of that power. (laughs) Thrust. Isn't that the word? Yes, that, that is exactly the word. I don't remember physics. That's I was my least favorite science. I just had a big problem, which is weird because I like math. I don't know. I don't. Yeah, that's the thing. I really like physics because it was math. Hated biology, but we can get into that on another day. I think. Mm, okay. I like, I like chemistry. Lots of feelings. Chemistry. I did I like too. Chemistry and earth science. Those are my two favorites. Yeah, we didn't get to do earth science. It was all about the teacher. Let's be real. I'm just putting it out there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ready. So the situation is we have these redstone rockets, which we think maybe can get a satellite up, but we need to fix the thrust problem. We need to give these rockets more thrust. And so there's two ways to fix that problem. You You talk to the explosives lady. Right. You talk to the explosives lady Mm -hmm. and hope that she can fix your problem. Mm -hmm. Or you redesign the entire missile system from the ground up. Oh, no. One of those expensive takes a long time. The other one, you just got to hope that she knows what she's doing. Which one do you think they go with? I think they build it from the ground up because there's a uterus there and they don't trust it. You know? Oh my God, does it not happen that way? Do they ask her? They ask her. Yay! And totally Would you be surprised though? I mean, come on. Yes, given everything we've talked about on this podcast, shocked. Mary's here. All of her experience, nah. Let's just make something new. Oh, well, way to go, team. Good job. Yeah. And so what they what they do is they basically they her her company had been working on some contracts for this missile program. They in effect, they do the government version of like call them up and be like, we need you to fix this problem right now. And her company is like, we got you. And they walk down the hall to Mary and they're like, Mary, we need you to fix this problem right now. And she's like, cool. This seems really important. What do you got for me? And they're like, we have you. We have two recent college graduates who are super excited to help you out. That's it. Go for it. <laughs> okay. And so it's her and like two starry-eyed, twenty-two-year-old dudes mm-hmm. 
trying to fix this problem. Really excellent demographic to have a woman as a boss. In the 50s, 60s. Yeah. 50s? Which I imagine. You said 50s, no. yeah. So I think, I, I I would imagine that's part of the reason she, like, doesn't get a bigger team with, like, some more experienced dudes on it. But also, she doesn't need it. Because she knows what she's doing. And sort of very methodically, she basically looks at all of the existing options. Mm-hmm. And she's like, does anything we have work? Mm-hmm. And goes down the list. And she's like, this doesn't work. It's too toxic. This doesn't work. We can't get the materials. This doesn't work. It's not powerful enough. Mm-hmm. And just like checks everything off the list one at a time and she gets to the bottom of the list and she's like okay none of our options work so the next thing she does she's like okay what if we mix it a little bit differently and that is a possibility because the way rocket fuels work is you need two things you need an oxidizer basically like something to to help it combust and then you need the thing that is combusting so you basically need like a fuel and fire and, and you right and Ignition. so Right, you need, like, something to feed the flames and then something to, like, make sure the flames are burning at the right rate and don't explode. And by mixing different combinations of those things in different proportions, Mm -hmm. you can change how much thrust you get. And so the thing that Mary sets about doing is she does all of these really complicated calculations to figure out, like, okay, here's the options we have for an accelerant. Here are the options we have for an oxidizer. What can we mix in what proportions to get the amount of thrust we need to get the rocket into space you know that you think this would be like a super complicated thing and they're like we need you to do this like yesterday Mm -hmm. so hurry it up and so she's doing all this work she's doing these calculations and what she lands on is and let's see if i can get through these chemical names so she lands on a mixture of 60 percent unsymmetrical dimethyl hydrazine and 40 percent diethyl netrimine Good job! Which would then be mixed with liquid oxygen. Ooh, spicy. Okay. Yes. And the idea, the reason this worked really well is because the diethylene mm-hmm. triamine Can you go based, on is, the, go based on the percentages? The 60% or the 40%? The 40%. The 40%? The 40% is really dense. Uh-huh. And people hadn't tried it before, but they thought... It could be pretty powerful. Yeah. And being dense is really good because it means you're getting more thrust with less, like material. you don't have to fill yeah. as much less material. Space, yeah. Exactly. And the 60%. So mixing, and that's just something like they knew worked really well, but you could mix it with this other thing. Uh-huh. And I think the thing you need to like right, find that right balance of not too toxic, mm-hmm. not too hard to get, not too expensive, right. burns at the right rate. And then let's and talk about liquid oxygen. All that. that seems hella dangerous, right? Yeah, it Isn't is. Isn't oxygen like dangerous. incredibly explosive? Or flammable. Yes. And yes, it is it is exactly that. Don't smoke and in that's a hospital. Exactly teams. why you want it. Because mm-hmm. it mixes really well with these other things and creates that incredibly flammable mixture at the bottom of your rocket. Because right, you do need you need oxygen for things to burn, but you can't okay. just like rely on enough being in just like around the in the atmosphere, especially kinda, once you start yeah, you'll getting eat closer up all to the space. oxygen around. So if exactly. you provide so you it, need to bring your own oxygen. Got it. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry. I just don't know enough about fires. But like, is that an element of like, my brain went to like, if you're near a rocket exploding, and you are protected from the flame and the heat and the pressure of it, could you still be affected by the fact that all the oxygen is getting sucked into the fire? Sometimes, yes. 
in theory. I think my 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 loose understanding of it is I think the pressure is generally what'll kill you. Mm. Like if you're near something that that's is that big to impact you. Yeah. But yeah, and like particularly too, if you're underground, I think yeah. that's what really will get you. If there's like a big explosion or fire somewhere that's like eats up all the oxygen and you yeah. don't even find space, yeah. eventually, yeah, there yeah. will be no oxygen left. Okay. Which is why like fire in mines is like super dangerous. Big deal. Okay. But she's doing all this yeah. in a mathematical sense. Right. And she's like, not actually like out scale? there. Right. So, I, so he, here's the thing I think is so cool. It's like she's doing all of these calculations, just like it's all on the math. And isn't actually like out like on a range somewhere like d- mixing things in beakers and then like lighting it on fire. But of course, like you do want to test it before you like put a bunch of this highly explosive stuff in a rocket and like try to set it off. So like she comes up with this mixture and is like, this is the thing. And then they test it and they're like, this works. And then they put it in the rocket and shoot the rocket into mm-hmm. space. So there is definitely like a they do try it. Yeah. But she's doing all of this just based yeah, on the math. To cut the losses. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And so the, and like, and here's, so here's the fun story. So just read all those really long chemical names, not super snappy, hard to talk about, takes a long time to write out. We don't want to call this mixture that. So they're trying to like figure out a name because they need to like put it in all the write-ups and like publicize it. And her pitch is they should call the mixture bagel because when you write it out, it's like the name of the mixture hyphen L-O-X for liquid oxygen. <laughs> which you could read as locks. Mm-hmm. So she wants to call it bagel and locks. She's cute. I love her. Yeah. I'm really bummed they didn't pick that. Oh, they no. Went with hygiene instead, which just doesn't have the same playfulness. Yeah, they don't want to be playful, though. They, those are people that take their job too seriously kind of thing. Yeah, but I would really be here for Yes, me too. They probably thought it was uh. like a weird thing with Jewish people, too, because it's the 50s. So there's yeah. probably some nonsense with that. Um, but so they call it hiding. They make a big tank of it. They take it to the rocket. They fill up the rocket. And then in January 1958, the rocket goes into space and we have the first US satellite, which is called Explorer 1 in space. And so think about the turnaround. So, sh- so the Soviets launched Sputnik in October and sh- she has this figured out by January, wow. like in enough time to like make it, put it in a rocket, send it to space. So there's weeks she's doing this within. Yeah. While having to do Christmas shopping and Thanksgiving and all that stuff. My goodness. Mm-hmm. What a year. Yep, and has, right, at this point, so at this point she's married with four kids. I don't know if she has all four kids, but she's married and, like, at least has a kid or is about to have a kid at this point. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, has a lot on her plate, but manages to get this off. Mm-hmm. And so, and this is, like, the first successful U.S. space rocket launch. Explorer 1. Explorer 1. And nothing's in it. Sort of it's like, just a rocket. Satellite? It's a satellite. satellite. Yeah, it's the first US satellite. Okay. Um, and sort of very similar to Sputnik. It's like mostly symbolic, but it's like we had to get something mm-hmm. up there. And it's mostly due to her, which is really cool. And I'm like, it's interesting because it's like literal rocket science. And it's a woman doing literal rocket science at a moment when like... Without a degree. Without a degree. Um, and obviously like sort of the hidden figure story is like very much... Yeah. The like NASA space yeah. effort is super dude heavy. Yeah, by mathematicians, man. Ta- that's the other part. Like yeah. this great exploratory achievement is first done on a chalkboard. You know, it's so cool. And that the women are the ones actually doing most of the really hard. Well, doing a, yeah. to make sure it doing all works. a lot of work that's not talked about. Yeah, for some yeah. reason they were never there on picture day or something. 
<laughs> no, it's, it's it is it is literally that. So there's this whole. This is a bit of a tangent, but it's so on on that. It's like there's this huge tradition that like you go to scientific conferences, and that's where you meet everyone and talk about these great ideas and like sort of develop the relationships that make science possible. And basically, anytime you go, you take a picture. Everyone like gets in front of the building and you take a big group photo. Except they always made the women, even if they were scientists, pretty much had to go take the photo with the wives. Because this is what we used to do, right? Like the men would come with their wives and the wives would be off doing their own thing. And like the men would be talking science. And when and like even if there were some women scientists, like they weren't in the picture because they had to go with the other women. This is going to mess with the look. It's going to mess with the look. We need to make this as homogenous looking as possible. And so they are literally not in the pictures, even though they were there. <laughs> because they weren't allowed to be there on picture day. <laughs> Oh my god, when I say things and they're true and I didn't know, it makes me just, oh my god, okay. Mm-hmm, sounds right, mm-hmm. cool. Well, yeah. we got rockets into space because of her, so. Exactly. Very cool. Yeah, and so, and the, like that sort of, the end of the story is a little sad. So she, pretty soon after this happens, uh, retires, like sort of steps away from work to take care of her kids. She has four of them. And doesn't really do... Also had four kids. There's a lot of Also had four kids. Okay. There's some symmetry here. And, like, doesn't really do much more and is very keen on sort of staying out of the public view to the point where when she passes away in 2004 and her son George, who is the playwright who wrote the book about her, where a lot of this research comes from, as he's sort of setting about to do that process, can find almost nothing about Mm, her. Because what there is is classified and sort of what exists in the public record is not... It's not really much. And so he does a lot of work to like get that declassified. But that's also a big reason like a lot of there's some embellishment in the book about her because there, you know, there's just not that much information. But of course, because he's a playwright, there's also a play about her called Rocket Girl. Same name as the book. And it's part of a series of three plays that her son is writing. I think might have written already about like sort of science moments of like exciting scientific discovery. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the, he writes the first one about his mom, which I think is like really That's cute. That's really sweet. Yeah. And yeah. so she must have talked about what she did at home. You know, it wasn't like news to him. Apparently not. <gasps> Apparently like oh. she really didn't talk about it that much. And he's sort of like in writing the biography, sort of eventually gets to the point of like asking like, was there like mental health things she was working through? Like was she suffering from depression or mm-hmm. like sort of something else that kept her in addition because like some of it's classified and she couldn't talk about just like not really wanting to engage with that part of her life. And like, obviously you can't really answer those things after the fact, but that was definitely something he sort of explored in writing her story, which in a way I think kind of fits, right? Like there's this sort of broader conversation about like women in the fifties who are like at home being homemakers, but like would that wouldn't necessarily have been their choice if they were allowed to make other choices Mm -hmm. being like suffering from depression and other mental health issues because they're being confined to this very like suburban ideal of like, what a woman should do that doesn't necessarily fit what they wanted to do. And I wonder if there's something to like, she got to do this really cool work that she was really good at and was like really exciting and was like very much contributing to these big national goals and then has to step away from that and isn't allowed or like isn't able or chooses not to participate in that work for most of the rest of her life. So we're not sure which of those happened to her? It, we don't really know whether mm-hmm. it was... And so it's interesting. So she meets her husband working at the aeronautics company. 
he's also an engineer. So like they're both doing the same work. It very much feels like sort of a a meeting of equals in that way. But at a certain point, I think like after they have their second kid, she steps away from work. Yeah, I mean like, yeah, and then they have two more, right? Yeah. So it is sort of like a, I I imagine it's sort of a combination. It's what a lot of of families are going through right now as they're trying to work and child raise and teach. And it's, you know, someone's got to do the labor and our society is preoccupied with a certain gender doing that labor. It makes sense that in the 60s, like, it's even more clear of, like, who who's going to... Because also, like, if they are still, like, a meeting of partners and it's totally equal, it's still, like, he has more chances to, like, mm-hmm. get a better living, get a better house, like, provide for the family. Like, it's just set up for him to succeed faster and easier. So, like... They're both smart people, but it makes sense in a lot of ways. But you can tell, yeah, the un, the unseen consequences in a lot of ways. Yeah. Wow. Definitely. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's that is Mary Sherman Morgan, literal rocket scientist who got the first American satellite into space. Kind of like microcosm of both of their times, are Marys. Yeah, I think that's like I I really like that. Right, like, it's like that. Barefoot on a horse in the Great Depression. Through the space age into the 21st century. She got to t- 2004. Yeah. And right. And you're, and you're Mary alive for the civil war yep. for world war one, women's suffrage, yep. prohibition, yep. the sort of entire populist movement, the beginning of the new all deal in one lifetime getting going. Yeah. Yeah. It is truly crazy to me. Whenever I stop and think about that, I'm like, wow, like the amount of stuff that happens over the course of one lifetime yeah especially those people who like i'm always super interested in people who bridge centuries you're like yeah born in one century live through into hey the boo that's us i know right i'm like we're gonna be the we're those i think people. about that a lot when i see people that are born like in the 100 years from me mm-hmm. where they would have the same kind of span of years in theory and like oh yeah. okay so like 1920 would have been the analog so like who was in their 30s in the 1920s you know that would have been me, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Just weird kind of parallels like that. But yeah, no, totally. yeah, people that span centuries are fascinating. And then also in this modern world, I would consider that like from the 20th century to now, we know so much more, we document so much more. Things are known at a more detailed level with immediate reference than they were back then. Like you sort of knew what the 1700s was like in the 1800s, but not to the level that we know about the 1900s, you know? And it's only going to be even more dense and archived for the next century, I think. Yeah, and true, it's like, it's that really crazy thing where you like sort of think like 100 years from like 1750s to 1850s, like some things changed, but like broadly, I think you'd sort of recognize it, right? Like people are riding horses around. Most of them are farming. Farming looks pretty similar. The fashion's weird. Yeah, but like not her, like you're like, oh, like, Women still wear dresses. But like 1850 to 1950, big, big shift. Yeah. And so I'm sort of curious, like what, like the 1950 to like 2050. Yeah. Well, think about it now, like 1920 to 2020. Yeah. And like, and right, it's, it's, but at the same time, it's like, like they still had cars. Cars look really different, but like they had cars, Mm -hmm. like they had, they had phones. Phones look really different and do like, oh, that's true. Like a computer, Michael? Right. And that's the thing that like computers... And space. I mean, my mom. Like the two my really mom and big... dad did this too, where they were like, we were t- they were talking about office space specifically, and all the things that you would need in a 1950s office on your desk 
versus now. And the, the, I forget where they saw it or whatever. It was like a picture. And somebody had like the typewriter, a Rolodex, the encyclopedias to look things up, a phone book, um, your pencils, your papers, your notepads, your files, all, everything in your filing cabinet and was like on the desk. And then they were like, and that, all of that in the modern sense. And it was like a laptop and a phone. You know, a, a calculator or even like an abacus or whatever to do basic arithmetic if you're a bookkeeper. And all of that was like into one laptop. And it's like, yeah, that's that's pretty wild. So like, I think that would be fascinating. Like you go to like your your advertising executive to an advertising executive now. Or I just, yeah, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. Yeah, stuff. or right, like Mary Farmer out West, Mary Farmer out West, both of them sort of like, having that that similar shared experience but ending up in two very different yeah sort of places and yeah. trajectories thinking of like things that are surprising i think modern wise i think the most kind of interesting people that would like to time travel would be like doctors i think a doctor from 1920 coming to 2020 would be fascinated like oh they come in and say oh so who gets typhoid nobody nobody gets typhoid anymore fixed it cholera nobody gets cholera Smallpox? Yeah, it's actually gone. We, we completely got rid of smallpox. Yeah, but measles, you should still get your measles, vaccines. They're, they are close to getting rid of, I don't think it's malaria. Maybe it is. A, a couple strains of malaria they're close to getting rid of. But yeah, measles. No, we shouldn't have measles. You need to get vaccinated. It's not good. It doesn't kill people like smallpox did, but it doesn't make your life any better to have it. So just don't have it. Don't. And help it. others that can't get it because they will die because mm-hmm. we should think, care about each other <laughs> get your vaccines kids get your vaccines like i got my flu shot oh do Me you too? know yes do you know i heard this rumor i need to talk to a doctor is the short answer you're not a doctor but i'm gonna ask you i got my flu shot like the second week of september and mm-hmm. somebody told me that was too early and i'll have to get another one nope not thank true you. okay thank i you. i and this is i'm not a doctor but i listened to a podcast hosted by a doctor okay. which is also technically not medical advice but they just did their annual flu shot like myth busting episode right. and that's one of them okay great you know never too it's never too early to get your flu shot mm-hmm. the moment a medical professional offers it to you you should yes. get it it takes two weeks to be effective so actually in getting it earlier it's a good idea too yeah because and we never know when flu season's going to start sometimes it starts as early as like october right. november in which case like you want to have it in september so right. you're ready to go so a flu shot does not dissipate over a year, the reason you get one year to year is not because it weakened and you need a booster. It's because it's a different strain. So it's it's both. Okay. It like it does over time weaken, but it also does mutate really quickly. So like were you to get like a flu shot in like January for like this for this fall, it might yeah. not be as nine months as isn't great. Sit within the six no. is fine. Right, exactly. Basically like August onward, which is when it's gonna be offered to you, yeah. you're super fine. Yeah. Just get it. It's and like, if flu season lasts a really long time, they would probably recommend you come and get another one. I don't think so. I think no. they're like, get one and you're okay. Because mm. pr- I think they're pretty sure it's like, you've got it yeah. covered. Through the, what, the, even a long flu season would be. September is fine. Yeah. Okay. Like if it's into April or whatever. Where it's still yeah. Flu. yeah, I think you're, you're still good to go. Okay, 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 okay. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, you just saved me a trip. There like, we go. Oh God! I'll get one if you want me to. I will. I don't care. I don't want it. I don't want the flu. Thank you. Yeah. No. 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 Good guys. Hey, we're not doctors. Uh, this is not medical advice. Vaccines are great. Get them. <laughs> yes. 
Talk Full to your stop. doctor. They'll tell you what to do. Consult a medical yeah, professional. Yeah, talk to a medical professional. I like vaccines. I will get vaccines. Speaking of, I need to get like the Tdap thing. I haven't gotten that one in a while. So pertussis mm-hmm. and all that stuff. I think I got it when my nephew was born. I don't know how often you're supposed to get it. I need a doctor. That's the short answer. I need yeah. I need a GP. <laughs> Track all this for me. I think on that note, that feels like a great place to Okay, leave it. yes. Sounds good. Bye, Michael. Bye, Katie. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for people you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Jen and Catherine for all their help on this project. And thank you for listening to Missing History.